beautiful music this day and uh, in our service this morning and this evening as well. It reminds me of a time we went to Montana together, and uh, that was a wonderful week of music. And I remember that that week for a number of reasons. One was I was flying back and forth uh, from Montana to Texas, which is an interesting commute. And uh, at the same time, it was a time when I was keenly aware as I was preaching that week, um, something that Spurgeon said years ago, we preach as, as dying men to dying people, uh, that in fact we are constantly aware of our own mortality and the mortality of others. It's in that song that we sometimes sing, Rescue the Perishing, that idea that reminds us that God has called us to save lives. And when I hear that song, I think about um, that image of the story that comes from the sinking of the Titanic where the, the people are, are floating in the water while half-empty lifeboats keep their distance and others are trying desperately to find a way to survive. Others could have been saved if some had just been willing to share. In his book, Growing Stronger, Chuck Swindoll tells a parable that he calls Saving Lives. And in that parable, he says, on a dangerous seacoast, notorious for shipwrecks, there was a crude little life-saving station. Actually, the station was more like a hut with only one boat, but the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the turbulent sea. Little thought for themselves, they would go out day and night tirelessly searching for those in danger as well as the lost. And many, many lives were saved by this brave band of men and women who faithfully worked as a team in and out of the life-saving station. By and by, it became a famous place, and some of those who had been saved, as well as others along the seacoast, wanted to become associated with it. They were willing to give their time and their energy, and the little life-saving station was built up. New boats were purchased, uh, new crews were trained, and the station that was once obscure and crude and virtually insignificant began to grow. Some of its members were unhappy that the hut was so unattractive and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided. Emergency cots were replaced with lovely furniture. Rough handmade equipment was discarded. Sophisticated classy systems were installed. And by the time of its completion, the life-saving station had become a popular gathering place. And its objectives had begun to shift. It was now used as a sort of clubhouse, an attractive building for popular gatherings and Saving lives, feeding the hungry, strengthening the fearful, calming the disturbed rarely occurred by now. Fewer members were now interested in braving the sea on life-saving missions, so they hired professional lifeboat crews to do this work. The original goal of the station wasn't altogether forgotten, however. The life-saving motif still prevailed in the club's decorations. In fact, there was a liturgical lifeboat preserved in the room of sweet memories with soft, indirect lighting. Do you see where he's going with this? About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and boat crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty. Some were terribly sick and lonely. Others were of different backgrounds and different from the majority of the club members. And the beautiful new club suddenly became messy and cluttered. And a special committee saw to it that a shower house was immediately built outside and away from the club so victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. The next meeting, there were strong words, angry feelings, which resulted in division among the members. 
And as you'd expect, some insisted upon still saving lives, but others were no longer interested in that. And uh, as years passed, uh, a group formed a new life-saving station there along the coast. The new station experienced the same old changes. It evolved into another club, and yet another life-saving station was begun. History repeated itself, and if you visit that coast today, you will discover a large number of exclusive, impressive clubs along the shoreline, owned and operated by slick professionals who've lost all involvement with the saving of lives. Oh, shipwrecks still occur in those waters, but most of the victims are not saved. Every day they drown at sea, and so few seem to care, so very few. Do we? Would you open your Bibles with me tonight to Acts chapter 2? Verses 42 to 47. I want to read a new passage to you tonight. Acts 2, 42 to 47. As we come to the end of our journey, I, I, I cannot finish this series without preaching verse 47. So let's stand together and read God's word. Speaking of this early church, it says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The passage that Rebecca read has a remarkable parallel with the passage I've just read. In fact, Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, you know that. And it's interesting that he says about Jesus that he grew in wisdom and in stature, in favor, that word is grace, with God and with people. It's a sort of summary statement of the growth of Jesus' life from 12 until he became an adult. Now, this same writer, Luke, picks up in the book of Acts and says, In my former treatise, O Theophilus, I wrote to you about what Jesus began to do and to teach, implying that in the second treatise, which we call the book of Acts, that he's going to tell not just about the church, but if you'll follow me, he's going to tell about what Jesus continued to do and to teach through his people, the church. And it's interesting that as he spoke about Jesus growing in favor with God and people, that he speaks about the church and says they praised God and they enjoyed the favor of all the people. In other words, the early church was so connected in its identity with Christ that the same thing that happened to Jesus, his winsome spirit that made him uh, somebody whom people loved, 
affected his church, the closer they got to him, the more they experienced that same kind of favor with the people around them. And as a result, what we discover is as they're growing, Matthew 22, in love with God and in love with their neighbors, the Lord works through them. He doesn't do just some mundane, menial uh, activity through them. No, through them, he saves those people. He adds those people who are being saved to the membership of the church. And the church grows as people are coming to know Christ. This is our history. This is our heritage And if we will claim it, it is also our destiny that we should be those who are used by the Lord to save the lives of others. For me, and I'll just confess for myself tonight, it is easy, like Chuck Swindoll's parable, to get busy with the business of church, to get so busy with the business of church that sometimes the things that called us into the service of the Lord at the outset are lost in a number of good things. It's not that we exchange the good for the bad. It's that we exchange the best for the good. Our work is to make disciples, and making disciples, you know me well enough to know that I don't believe making disciples is just about the number of conversions in the church. But will you agree with me that the church can't succeed at making disciples if there are, for instance, no conversions in the church? I mean, it's one thing to grow people up who are saved, and we ought to do a good job of that, but it's another thing to actually go and find those people who need to know the Lord and bring them into relationship with Jesus Christ. And the early church did that well. They uh, still had enough connections with people who didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that they could invest their time at the temple and inviting people into their homes in such a way that God worked through them to bring other people into relationship with Himself. Now note clearly that it's the Lord who saved these people. It's the Lord who added them. But I believe for a church to be effective in our work in God's kingdom in this world, we will have to first believe that people actually need to be saved. And I know I'm talking to Baptists tonight, but I also know that we sometimes can forget how important that is. The second thing we'll have to believe is that the Lord is the only one who can save them. That they're not somehow going to get in on um, some backdoor policy uh, that they, uh, you know, they just did enough good in their lives or maybe they didn't understand it or maybe somebody didn't talk to them enough and so they just never had the chance to receive Christ. So they're not, no, no, we have to believe that they need to be saved and that the Lord is the only one who can save them. And then you and I have to take those two truths to heart in such a way that we begin to invest ourselves in the work of leading people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. First, for us to fulfill God's work in our midst, we would have to believe that people actually need to be saved. And this word saved, I think to us, is a word that sort of like Chuck Swindoll's parable becomes a bit uncomfortable for us because 
We'd rather think in terms of people finding a good church home and settling in and becoming comfortable. But that's not really the word that's used. It's a word of rescue. I've spent some time in recent months, I should probably say recent years now, studying that word saved and savior and salvation. I've looked at it backwards and forwards. And there's no other way to see it except to say that it describes something of a rescue, not not unlike those... um, firefighters who go into a home that is burning down and pull people out and save their lives, not unlike those who dive into the water and save somebody who is drowning. It is that desperate of a word. And I am not exercising an engagement in hyperbole to say people you know need to be rescued. They need to be rescued from sin and from self. And some of them, it's obvious to us when we look at them and say, those people are in desperate straits. They're in great danger and they need to be saved. But I would suggest to you that some people you know who look like they have it all together need to be saved. And you and I cannot assume that there are people out there who seem to have their lives together but have no place in their lives for God will somehow, you know, they'll be okay in their life. No, they really need to be saved. And for you and I to understand God's work in our world, we must understand that God would mobilize us for that work. As Rick Warren said, the greatest challenge for the church is to turn an audience into an army. Everybody we know needs to know Jesus Christ. And these Early disciples really believe that to the core of their being. You hear it in in Peter's message at Pentecost just earlier in this chapter in verse 21 when he says to them, "Um, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And then in verse 40 he says, save yourselves. That is, deliver yourselves from this corrupt uh, generation. And in chapter 4 verse 12 when when Peter and John are, are... offering an account of why they're doing what they're doing, preaching the gospel. They say, there is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved. And I wondered if you and I really believe that people must be saved. Josh McDowell tells about an acquaintance of his who's an executive hirer, or as the industry says, a a headhunter. And when he's working with people, trying to help them find a job, he says to them, you have to be able to answer this strategic question, what is your purpose in life? He gets all kinds of answers that I wonder how you would answer that. What is your purpose in life? He spoke to one man and the man said to him, without blinking an eye, to go to heaven and take as many people with me as I can. Now that's an interesting purpose for life, isn't it? Some people would say, well, my purpose for life is, you know, to, to live a good life and to, you know, um, provide some inheritance for my... No. To go to heaven and take as many people with me as I can. I think that's a great answer. I I think we could broaden it and say to glorify God by growing in relationship with him so that heaven becomes a part of my life so that I'm ready when I get to heaven and to take as many people with me. I would amplify it a little bit, but I'm afraid we've lost this urgency because we're not convinced that people we know really need to be saved. One day, the great evangelist D.L. Moody stopped a stranger on the street and asked him, are you a Christian? The man was upset and said, you know, that, that's a very personal question. I think you should mind your own business. And D.L. Moody said, this is my business. And the man looked at him and said, then you must be D.L. Moody. He knew Moody's reputation enough to know what he was about. Evangelism begins with a concern that people need to be saved. Evangelism builds on the conviction that Jesus alone can save people. 
You see it in, in 2 verse 21 when he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not as though Peter thought there was any other way to be saved. Not as though he thought any religion will do you. He's, he says, uh, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 38, in chapter 3, verse 6, when he lifts the man to his feet, he says, in the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And he commanded the man to rise and walk. And he did, again in 4.12, salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So we share our faith because we believe that Jesus is the only answer. Some years ago, Evie Hill was invited to return to San Antonio. He grew up in Luling, uh, Texas, and uh, they wanted him to do a prayer of dedication for a community project there. And They said, we want you to come, but we just want you to be clear. We want it to be an unoffensive, multicultural kind of prayer. He said, what do you mean by that? We said, well, we don't want to offend the Buddhists or the Islamic people or our Jewish brothers, so we, we want to, you to avoid praying in the name of of Jesus. We don't want to offend uh, the Hindus. We just want you to pray uh, in, a, in a sort of multicultural kind of way. And Evie said, I can't come. I said, well, why can't you come? He said, because if I come, I'm going to pray to the God who is. If I come, I'm going to pray to the God who is able to save. When we go to people whose lives are self-destructing, we must go with the confidence that we serve the Lord who is able to save to the uttermost all who call upon his name. Which brings me to my final thought tonight. That this kind of evangelism requires a commitment to share our own faith. You see it in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 when Jesus says, After the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. And I just did a little bit of research and just sort of tracked that word. And it says in chapter 3 verse 6 that they witnessed the power of Christ to save. And in, in chapter 4 verse 10 when the rulers asked him by what power and what name... They gave glory to God through the name of Jesus Christ. And in verse 20 of chapter 4, they said, We cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard, which is, by the way, what a witness does. In chapter 4, verse 29, they ask God to help them preach the gospel boldly. And in chapter 4, verse 33, God answers their prayer and they witness boldly. In chapter 5, verse 32, it says, We are witnesses of these things. And in chapter 5, verse 42, it says, They never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. In chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God spread. It's another one of those summary statements. After they solved the feeding of the widows, um, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. That is, they reached the people, the Sadducees, who were the farthest from the kingdom of God. I know they were the priests, but the Sadducees were those who really didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in demons. They didn't believe in heaven. They didn't believe in hell. They didn't believe in a lot of things. And those people were becoming followers of Jesus Christ. They reached the hardest people to reach in the city of Jerusalem. And if we believe that people need to be saved and that Jesus saves, then my, my question at the risk of being obvious is what are we doing about it? One nationwide survey conducted by Barner Research found that on any Sunday morning, one out of four unchurched people would willingly attend a church service if a friend would invite them to do so. You hear that? I mean, they want to come. Hockey star Wayne Gretzky used to say, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. You all, you're never going to make a shot if you don't take it. And I want to invite you to think intentionally about evangelism. If I could just be practical about it. I think we see in this passage when it says they were praising God, verse 47, we see adorational evangelism. That is, they were caught in adoration. They were worshiping God, and people who watched them knew there was something to their relationship with God. 
I think we see in this passage also what I would call intercessional evangelism in verse 42 where it says they devoted themselves to prayer. I think they were praying for people to come to know Christ. You you hear it in their prayer in chapter 4. They wanted people to come to know Christ. I remember years ago, one of the most dramatic conversions I remember was of a friend of mine named Dwight Kelly. He was as resistant to the gospel as anybody I ever knew. I remember one revival, a revival preacher and I pulled up to the door of his mother's house. We knew he was eating lunch there. He saw us and went out the back door and got in his pickup and drove away before we could talk to him. And Melanie and I put his name on the bulletin board in our little apartment there in Waco and we prayed for him every time we looked at that name and that week he came to that revival service and one night he walked down the aisle and he received Christ as his savior there is power in praying for people to come to know Christ my new friend Carl is praying for my father to become a follower of Christ you've been praying for that I believe there is great power in intercessional evangelism There is also what I would call relational evangelism. It's in that word, enjoying the favor of all the people. They didn't make themselves obnoxious. They loved people, and that came through as they they cared for them. And then there is what I would call invitational evangelism, where we're actually inviting people into our homes, into our lives, so that we can share the good news of Jesus Christ with them. Bill Hybels gives an example from a baptismal service at their church. When they baptize, they invite the ones who are responsible for leading that person to Christ to stand while they baptize that person. It's an interesting way to do baptism. And uh, he noticed one day as they were baptizing in the lake in front of their church, they baptize outdoors. Uh, They only do about once a year because in Chicago, you can't just go outside at any time of the year and baptize in the outdoors. And uh, they were baptizing, and this one lady continued to stand. He thought she misunderstood what he was saying, but afterward... He went to her and said, are you part of leading all these people that all gathered around her? He said, are you part of, and they said, yes, she's the one who led us to the Lord. And he just thought, wow, she must be an incredible person with a gift of evangelism. But instead, what he discovered was she was very shy and retiring. And they said, um, he said to them, how did this lady lead all of you to Christ? And they said, well, she's the receptionist in our office. And from time to time, we all get in trouble with things and projects that we haven't gotten done. And we've asked her for help with them and she helps us. But then we say to her, how can we ever pay you back? And she says, Would you come to my church this weekend? And over a period of time, uh, all of us came. And over a period of time, we came back. And we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, we became followers of Christ. And we are here today being baptized because she was faithful to invite us to come. So here, let let me just lay an opportunity out there for you. Over the next three weeks, I'm going to be talking about, about Jesus And this would be, these next three Saturday nights and Sunday mornings would be great times. I I don't always preach, uh, 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 you know, uh, evangelism. Um, I don't always do that every week in a way. But I'm telling you, for the next three weeks, if you've been waiting, you've been wondering, you know, I don't want to come on one of those Sundays when he's preaching about tithing and bring all my friends, you know. Well, let me just encourage you here. The next three Sundays, the next three weekends would be great weekends for you to bring friends who do not know Jesus Christ. We're going to be thinking about who Jesus is in a very pointed and and intentional way. It's not just about evangelism. It's about discipleship. It's about knowing Christ. It's about walking with Him. But it would be a great time for you to bring them. And so if you're wondering when, the next three weeks would be a great time to come. And I just want you to hear what, what the book of Jude says about this. It says, be merciful to those who doubt. Snatch others from the fire and save them. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. 
I don't know if you're gifted as an evangelist, but I don't think you have to be. In fact, I don't think the lost people in the city of Houston can afford to wait for the people with the gift of evangelism to share the good news with them. Christ gave that commission to the whole church. So if you're part of the whole church, it is your work to share the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. Maybe you've heard the story of the preacher named John Harper. He was a Baptist preacher who was on the Titanic when it went down, and he reportedly said, women, children, and the unsaved in the lifeboats first. One man uh, picked up by the SS Carpathia, after clinging to a board for several hours, recalled an encounter with a man that turned out to be Harper. It seems that after the ship had gone down, the man drifted near another passenger, Harper, who was struggling himself to stay afloat. And Harper shouted across the water at him, Are you saved? And the man said, I don't believe that I am. And Harper shouted to him, Acts chapter 16, verse 31. He said to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They drifted apart for a while, but as the currents were, they drifted close again. And Harper said, Are you saved yet? And the man said, No, I don't believe that I am. And again, he heard across the water, Acts chapter 16, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. When they rescued the man and he told this story, what he said was there was a period of time when he realized that Harper had gone under the water and Harper was no longer alive. But he said, floating there, hanging onto a board in the frozen waters with two miles of water below me, I called upon the name of the Lord and I became a follower of Jesus Christ. And he is known as John Harper's last convert I wish there were some way I could impart to you the urgency that I feel in my soul tonight some of the people whose names will be written in the obituary of the Houston Chronicle this week will be people who do not know Jesus Christ and believe me when I say I'm not being callous when I say they will spend an eternity separated from God and you and I have this day this week Until the Lord Jesus Christ calls us home, we have this occasion to share what we believe. That Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And my challenge to you is, don't miss your divine appointment this week. Tell somebody, tell somebody what Jesus Christ has done for you. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your presence in this place. We confess, Lord that we are busy about many, many things, and they are good things. But Father, we earnestly believe that the only reason we are in relationship with you is because we have come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. We earnestly believe that He's the only hope for the world. For instance, for the people we know, He's the only hope. So tonight, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful, to act on that conviction because people need the Lord and we know you help us to be faithful and give us a divine appointment this week I pray in Jesus name Amen